Hi, everybody. I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O'Henry Productions. You're listening to Episode 2 of The O'Henry Report, the new podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. On the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. This week's issue, replacement casting. We'll take a deep dive into how replacements are cast, particularly when involving an entering or exiting star. Now, most recently in the world of recasting, we learned that Billy Porter and Stark Sands will be returning to Kinky Boots this fall in the roles that they originated. When we first programmed the show, it was inspired by a host of star-studded casting changes that occurred over the summer. Brendan Yuri went into Kinky Boots. Sarah Bareilles came out of Waitress. Norm Lewis and Carolee Carmelo went into Sweeney Todd. And Josh Groban left The Great Comet to be replaced by Hamilton original cast member known as Oak. Since then, a controversy erupted surrounding the star casting of Oak's replacement, Mandy Patinkin. A Tony Award-winning actor best known for his roles in The Princess Bride and TV's Homeland. To make room for Patinkin, the show's producers had to cut Oak's engagement short. Outrage from community members and fans spread across social media, and Patinkin decided to pull out of the show. Suddenly, the issue of replacement casting became much more relevant and so much more intriguing. We'll dive into what happened on The Great Comet later on in this episode. But first, we'll dissect the practice of star replacement casting more generally by talking to three professionals who are critical to this process. First, Cesar Rocha, a casting director at Telsey, will explain how a replacement gets cast and discuss the strategies and techniques that are used in selecting the star. Then, we'll talk to Sammy Cannold, the associate director on Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812, about the rehearsal process for replacing members of the cast. Now, once we have a star, we have to get the word out that the star is in our show. We gotta sell tickets. For information on the process of marketing a star replacement, we'll turn to Jimmy McNicholas, a creative director at Spotco. Finally, when we have a firm grasp of what happens in general with replacement casting, we'll return to the recent controversy surrounding The Great Comet and talk to Daniel Cuny, a Broadway and Off-Broadway general manager. He'll take us through a look at the structure of equity contracts and how that might inform what happened last week. So now... How do we find a star for our show? Our first guest, Cesar Rocha, is a casting director at Telsey & Co., who works on shows including Wicked and Hamilton, as well as Our Little Downtown Sweeney Todd. Cesar, thanks for coming on the show to talk to us about star and replacement casting. To start, I'd love for you to give us a brief overview of what your role is on a production as casting director. So the casting director in the process is, you know, a lot of times is the first step we stop. It's where we start putting people into roles. I think um, our job is to introduce the director, the music director, the choreographers, the producers to people to play the roles of the, of the show we're putting together. That process varies from show to show, you know, whether it's a revival, whether it's a brand new project, a lot of shows i'm sure as you know start as a reading or a workshop and we're involved with auditioning actors and showing actors to producers directors choreographers to be in the show i think uh, the best way to think about it and i've i've the one way i've figured out how to make it clear is we're personal shoppers for productions and we show the directors the choreographers and the creative team people that would be right for the production with their guidance you know, the first step is usually having a sit down with a director and talking about like, so this is what I see as um, as what this role should be. This is who I'm interested in. It involves a lot of lists, you know, like these are people, you know, let's start at a jumping point here. It's a Brian Cranston type. It's a Lady Gaga type. It's 
it's we want a lot of you know we want to represent this kind of uh culture we want to so i think it all starts and personal shopping because of the volume of things that are happening now in the entertainment industry from musical theater to tv and film the amount of actors that are out there it's it's a huge number so our job is to cover that and be showing the director and the director and the creative team the right people for the roles so something that people always think is like oh well you make the decision of who's being in the show well not really we guide that decision and we kind of steer the train and help the creative team come to a decision and a lot of times the de- the final decision is not made by us mm-hmm. it's made by the people who are putting the show together yeah i've never heard the personal shopping example and i think i think yeah. that's the best way uh, to define it really gives you a good understanding of, of where you where you fit in the in the puzzle mm-hmm. of the production so with that, I wanted to start with a question just about what the differences are, if there are any, between when you cast an original cast member of a production and when then you look for a replacement. Yeah, um, they vary. You know, an original cast, whether it is an original Broadway show, an original Broadway production, a lot of times the director is looking at people and trying to bi- – and trying to find the thing that excites them to build the character. And I think that happens a lot. You know, we go into a casting process and have a conversation with the director of like, oh, this person should be this and this and this. And as a casting director, you take those clues and you walk away and you're like, okay, well, these are the people that are right. But I also think that something that they're not thinking about is also this. And let me show them people. And in the original casting process, it becomes a thing of finding it is what sparks the director and what, what gives them the closest thing to their vision? You know, we work on uh, such long running shows such as Wicked and we, you know, a show like that that's been along for a long time is the original cast, which I wasn't around for and working on, but working on replacements. The original cast was more about like, what is that one person who's perfect? Because who do I want to build this show on? Because a lot of times with the original cast, you learn a lot or roles get written, you know, musically for this person or you know, I've worked on shows where we cast someone and during the audition process or the rehearsal process, we find out this person's a dancer. So we throw in a bunch of stuff. Oh, let's throw in a big dance number for them in the second act, which was never there. But because the person had those skills and we've seen them in that process, that's added. Whereas a replacement cast, you're trying to fulfill the requirements of the role. Like in Wicked, the alphabet will always have to sing Defying Gravity. That's the show. So we're trying to fulfill that. But there's also the room to be like, well, you know, last time that we did this, you know, I wish we could find someone like this. So there's so room for creativity. And as you move along, there's space to expand on things that are already there. But because the show is frozen and the show's set and we know the requirements, we have to make sure those are all being fulfilled, which in an original cast, you build those things with the person. That's really interesting. So it sounds like there's sort of like certain elements, certain check boxes that when, once the show is mm-hmm. frozen, the, the replacement has to know they have to be able to tap dance or they have to be able to, you know, they have to have this range, whatever those are. And then most of the other stuff are up in the air, right? Yeah. I think something that's really interesting, um, we just finished working on Frozen and I went to a run through at the theater, at the space before they headed to Denver. And there was a lot of things in there that in our audition process were never discussed, but in the rehearsal room, because they had the person there, things got added and they, and in my brain as a casting director said, wow, we're going to have to, as we move forward in this production, 
we're going to have to continue to find people that can do all those things. It makes your job harder. Yeah. It's like, it's where we find, yeah, it's where we, you know, an original cast is always, we call those the unicorns because it's the people that do everything. And then you're always having to find someone to fit. And I wouldn't use the word mold necessarily, but to fit into those requirements, the check boxes of like, well, that person actually is a dancer and then they also have to sing a high C and they also have to tumble. And they also, because that original person was someone that was like, oh yeah, I also do that. I think also there's an excitement and when you're putting together an original cast that a lot of people want to be a part of it. Sure. You know, I lo- you know, the top notch talent comes out and not to say that replacements aren't top notch talent at all. I mean, I've seen shows grow and replacements, you know, even be, I don't want to use the word better, but more exciting or bring things to the table. But it's, you know, you have a little bit more of a pick of who's out right. there, who is available. When, when a star comes in for a role that might not have had a star, well, well I guess my first question is, and my guess is that this happens a few different ways, depending on who the star is and what production it is. But does a star usually audition? Do they contact the production? Do you contact them? Is it all three of those things? You know, it's all different. I think it's it it all varies. I think a lot of times we're very we've been lucky as casting directors to have someone see a show and be so enthralled by it, and it's a call of like they saw the show, this they really want to do it. They love the show. They saw it. You know, they were in New York. They were in last week and they bought tickets and they went and they're obsessed with it and they want to play this role. There's also the us reaching out to agents and, you know, because of the amount of crossover that exists now with TV, film and theater, you know, you, we all watch TV now and you're like, Oh my God, I saw that person right. play last week. They're like, that's my favorite actors from this. And, you know, there's no, the lines are so greatly blurred now instead of, how in the past it was like, you're a theater actor, you're a TV actor, you're a film actor. So the second step is also, hey, so the conversation is had of like, you know, we'd like to, to explore if there's a name or a star that, you know, would be interested in coming into the show. We're happy to get them in. So our calls start and we start talking to agents and say, like, hey, who's around? Or we send around a list of names to the producers, director, and where we say, these are people that we think would be great that have mm-hmm. a name value. And, you know, that changes for every single production. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of names, you know, music names, which are, you know, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, those, that level person. There's also movie stars that, you know, the Julia Roberts and the Amy Adams and that's level. And there's also within, even within those, like some, for certain shows, it's a country star, you know, Reba McIntyre did Annie Get Your Gun. And that is a country star and because the demographic of that show. Um, but then the, the conversation starts with agents of like, hey, who's around? Can we check this person's avail? When are they available? And then it's up to the producers, you know, in the schedule of who we have in the show. This is when so-and-so is leaving. This is when their contract's up. Because people, principals on Broadway are on term contracts. Mm-hmm. So their contracts have an end date. And they're, of course, always welcome to be extended at the producer's discretion. But it's a conversation of like, this is what we want to do and let's explore. Sure. And then there's also the other thing of, you know, the producer, the director has a relationship with the actor or the performer and has dinner with them and talks to them. And they're like, Oh, I'd love to do that show. Let's make it work. And people end up into the show like that for an original cast. A lot of times the star name is attached a lot before we're involved or we attach that. It's all different. I think it's a case-by-case basis. It depends on what the producer wants to do and how the producer wants to handle that. Yeah. When there's uh, a either discussion about a name, let's say, or mm-hmm. 
and and this might be two different answers, but either that discussion yeah. or in a rehearsal in a audition room if if the if the person is auditioning, can you tell me a little bit about who is in that room? Yeah, yeah, you know, for start, and I I realize I didn't answer that earlier, but I, just to touch on that, yes, you know, a lot of times there's stars who the director and the producers feel, well, we want to get them to come in because this is a huge score Mm. and we don't know if they can sing like that. We've never seen them, you know, music celebrities. We've never known if they can carry a scene or a book scene or, you know, be, or do they act? Do, are they real actors or actually the, the actor, the acting in this is really big and there's really big book scenes. So what do, what are those requirements? If those people come in, most of the time the director's present Mm -hmm. because those people, you know, you deserve, if you're making a commitment to someone like that, uh, you have the respect to the performer and the production. You have the director there and you have key producers. Key producers are always there because it's a relationship we're creating with this person because we want to treat them at the level that the production, that of the value that it's going to bring the production. I think we're in a season right now where it's very obvious that a huge name, someone like Bette Midler, is fantastic in a role and also great for box office name. And she is, and she's amazing. But someone like Bette Midler, we know that she can sing mm. that. And we know that she can do eight shows a week. There are other people who we don't know if they can do eight shows a week. They've never done theater. They've never done a show. So you have to uh, gauge that with them. So switching a little bit, just to talk about the timeline, either on average or, or if you can give me a range, um, I'm curious from the moment that you find out that either either you know someone is leaving or their you know their limited run is up to the moment that the next person well either the, that the cast gets announced or that the person the, the replacement hits mm-hmm. the stage what is that like how long of a process is it and about when do you start the search and about when do you have to make your decision Yeah I think you know the big the huge thing and you know uh you know, is it's we're always up against time with these things, you know, and someone might start, you know, the minute that someone starts, signs their contract and starts rehearsals, we know when end date. a lot of, you know, we get higher emails. It's like, so-and-so will be ending on. Yeah. That end date can be nine months. That end date can be a year. And, you know, I think it's like through the halfway point, we start thinking about what are we going to do? Who's going to replace? Mm-hmm. And I think three months out, you kind of want to know what's going to happen because not only especially with principal roles and with people of that caliber or a name, you kind of have to go into negotiations, which when you are negotiating and we're using a hypothetical name, like someone like Lady Gaga, or you're negotiating with Julia Roberts or Meryl Streep, that's not a quick negotiation of like, this is the money, this is what's happening. This is what's going to go into. You start negotiating travel, you negotiate time off, you negotiate pay. Uh, There's a lot of things that go into that. So you want to allow time for that. Because that can't be rushed. Because you won't get a quick answer. So um, it's also on the on the subject of sort of time frame. It, you know, you, you see a lot of these shows, some of which you work on, that that recasting seems like because of the the, the pace. So right now, I'm just thinking about Sweeney Todd, which um, I know you cast and 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 I'm affiliated with. That the some of the originals who were in the cast just there was an announcement like last week about their replacements. And then also, I know that Norm Lewis, who was playing Sweeney, who entered, I, I think around the same time or on the same date, uh, on the same date actually as Carolee Carmelo, 
that Norm's replacement, Panera, was was announced, but that Carly is staying. It seems like because of some people stay, some people don't, some people get replaced on one week, some people on another, that you used to sort of have your hands full and that maybe, you know, is, 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 it, is it something that you're sort of constantly working for all your clients or is it, you know, when they need someone, they pick up the phone? You know, we... We keep an eye on when people are leaving. Like, uh, SUNY Todd has been an amazing experience because they're very upfront about when people's end dates and begin dates and how long rehearsal period is. I think that's also something that goes into it. Sweeney is a full, you need a real rehearsal period because you right. can't just put someone in. I don't know, uh, for those listeners who haven't seen it, it's A, amazing, but B, because of the, um, environmental nature of it you can't just be like okay great stand here sing here walk off your costumes change here and you're done it's in for those who don't know it's it's in a pie shop and not in a proscenium and they're everywhere it's so good if you have not seen it (laughs) you just should go right now stop what you're doing buy tickets and go right now because it's amazing and i I happen to agree yeah and it just it it that production itself we always also our team is in London, so scheduling everything become is is it it's it, it takes time. But I think you know with someone we know we knew when Norm started when the end of his contract was, and around halfway we you know we started talks with the cast and people were like, "Yep, I'm staying," or "No, I'm going." And Carolee, we're so lucky to have her continue with the show because she's phenomenal. And so it was more about like, well, this is where we're at and this is what we need. And even during our casting process for this new cast with Hugh and Aaron and Jake um, and all the folks that are going in, it was more a conversation of like, well, this is the world we're building. And here we have our anchors because I think Hmm. the kind of production it is, it's an ensemble show. Although it is Sweeney Todd and there's a title character, you know, everyone is very important to that production and the, the mechanisms of how it moves. So we were putting together an ensemble with already anchors, which was easier than when we were originally putting together the kind of the second company or the first company because there were unknowns and we were putting new people together. But I think, you know, we are always working. I mean, on a show like Wicked and now that we're working on Frozen, I'm always looking for an Alphabet. I'm always looking for an Elsa. I'm always looking for a Glinda because we're all, because those shows will do, are doing really well and will continue to do well. And we're always going to have to be a replacement, whether that's in a year, two years. But my brain is always, you know, I always have my antennas up in our office. You know, we also work on Hamilton and a show like that is my antennas are always up if I see someone who's fantastic and fits into that show and we can start the audition process. Whether there's a job that's immediately available, whether that's like, oh, we need someone to start in six months, three months, two months, or it's like we don't have a job. But God, this person's amazing and they'd be great and I can't wait to see them. So that's where our files start. You know, our teams. You was, know, the yeah, G- that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, our teams and the the general, they do keep us in the loop of when, when there are needs. But we, you know, I, I love it. It's the best. It's, you know, I can be at a showcase or I can go to a show downtown or go to a concert. You know, many, there's this one girl who I thought was fantastic and we saw her at a concert at 54 Below once and I had no idea who she was, but three weeks later, you know, not three weeks later, I saw her for a show. And then seven months later, we saw her for something else. But I always was like, that's an alphabet. And a year later, when we had a job, I was like, I'm going to bring her in and she booked it. But you have to keep track of these people because it's just because if we did work only when it was needed, I don't know. I don't think we could do it. Caesar, that was great. Thank you for coming on and telling us how you discover these talents and pick the stars 
and shedding light on that whole process. Now that we do have our star, our new cast member, they need to learn the show. And to talk to us about that, I have Sammy Cannell, the associate director on Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And we'll talk to her mainly about her work on that show, but she's also a director in her own right, having directed last year's Concert of Ragtime on Ellis Island, and also The Violet at ART, which took place on a moving bus. So Sammy, thanks for coming on. Could you fill us in on what the rehearsal process is like when you're rehearsing someone who is going into a show where all of his or her castmates already know the show. I imagine it's very different from the process of building a show from the ground up that you rehearse in a slightly different way. Um, it's progressive. So the first rehearsal, I mean, the first few rehearsals are usually that they go and learn music. And because none of our show is spoken, that's sort of the score that they're working on with. I mean, it is the score that they're working with. And so the, once they've learned the score, then we, depending on like if we're in space or not, we'll look at maps of our stage, especially because it's, it's so complicated on our show, and say, you know, this is where you go on this line and this is where you go on this line because there's quite a specific... Um, blueprint in terms of what people are doing when on the show. So you're, you're actually looking at what is on your show a very complicated map of, of the stage and pointing and tracking out where, where they would be? Exactly. So we, we print them tons and tons of ground plans and we basically mark out where they're going. And, and, and sort of within that, that we will have sessions where we talk about who the character is and answer dramaturgical questions that they have and go over, you know, what the character's relationships with the other people in the show are. And sometimes that's me, sometimes that's Rachel. Um, but it, it, you know, that, that's a important part of it. And then, then we map out everything on the map. Sometimes we've been, you know, it, it depends on when we're able to get in space, but sometimes we just go ahead and start doing it in space and I will walk them through their track, um, which is always great. When is the first time that they actually do it with uh, someone? I don't know if it's actually the, the actors that they end up doing it with on their first night or, or is this rehearsal with other cast members from the get go? Um, it usually what happens is they're by themselves for the first two, three weeks and then we start bringing in scene partners, and then in their put-in, it's usually the full company. So they progressively work with more and more people. When you're rehearsing, are there differences in, in, in sort of directing style or directing strategy with a replacement? How do you keep your, kind of, your brain clear of, um, and I'm sure this is something that's twice as hard for the actual actor if they've if they've seen the part but how do you mm -hmm. keep your brain you know clear of, of the character that you've helped an, an original cast member built when you are directing uh, a replacement it's tricky uh and i think on this show and for me i try very hard to not keep my or to to keep what the original cast member is doing in my mind very clearly mm. not necessarily in the sense of like uh, requiring the replacement or understudy to replicate, but to replicate in terms of uh, intention. Like the 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 intentions of that character should be the same, regardless right. of who's doing it. How they execute can be a little bit different, but you know, for me and you know, it, 
the great comet is, is not my vision. Um, it's Rachel's. And so in trying to understand how I can do her vision justice, my main blueprint is looking at what these principles created because she has endorsed that and, you know, uh, not, not only endorsed it, but shaped it with them. So I hold that very close, but I think it's, it's maintaining a sense of, um, openness about, you know, watching how different people get to that same end result. So, you know, I, I, I think it's trickier on our show than it is on other shows because, our lighting is so specific and that's why it's so amazing. Um, uh, you know, and our sound system is so unbelievably specific that if you, you know, like step a few steps the wrong way, Mm. you know, your voice could be coming from a different speaker (laughs) and it could mess everything up. Um, so, you know, there is a certain degree where we have to say, you know, this is exactly where you have to be. Um, so, but I, but I think that's helpful to the majority of actors in the sense that, like, it, it's like you're given a textbook for how to pass the test and you just have to, like, follow the textbook, but your answers can be a little bit creative. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you just have to follow the blueprint. Sammy, thank you so much for filling us in on the rehearsal process. Now, the star rehearsed and in the show, the marketing team starts to launch a campaign to make sure the public knows that the star is in the show. Jimmy McNicholas is a creative director at Spotco. He oversees the brand identity, look, key art, and voice of each of his shows, seeking to use these aspects to drive ticket sales. He is currently represented on Broadway with Kinky Boots, The Play That Goes Wrong, and The Great Comet. So, Jimmy, earlier we talked to Cesar Rocha, who told us as a casting director, he'll create lists of possible stars that could fill a role, and then a decision will be made on which of those should be given the offer. Is that something that is that list something that you or someone else at Spotco would be consulted on to weigh in on what that star, what some of those stars would do in terms of the marketing efforts and ticket sales for the show? Occasionally, yeah, it depends on the producer. So, you know, we've got longstanding relationships with certain producers who think of us as friends and consultants. And partners. And so those types of clients will come to us early on and they'll say, what do you think of such and such, you know, and they'll, 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 they'll get our thoughts on, on whether we think that person would sell tickets or not. Uh, we also offer a variety of research tools to them so we can say, you know what, let, let us do some work, um, and get some facts and figures using Facebook tools and Google and you name it. Um, and we can come back to you and, and, you know, give you not only our thoughts, but, but, you know, a larger sense of, of, of what we think might happen if you were to put that person on sale. Um, it doesn't happen all the time. You know, it, it's occasional and it depends on the project and it depends on the client. Another time, um, a producer might reach out to their entire team, you know, their, their press team, their advertising team to say, hey, guys, we need somebody in, in such and such role go brainstorm, you know? So I love the fashion brainstorm where I get the team together here and we think who could play this role. Um, so, you know, there are times when it really takes a village in terms of, of casting. Obviously the casting director is the one doing the work and, and figuring it out with the producer, but sometimes we're, you know, we're used for opinions and brainstorms. Um, and, and when somebody is going into a show, 
you know, sometimes, sometimes we're just told, look, this person's going into the show, let's sell some tickets. Other times, you know, we, we, we've had a sense of who the final contenders are before the decision's made. Sure. I'm interested if you could talk about a little bit that uh, you mentioned that there are some tools that you uh, use to, I, I guess, is it, am I correct that it kind of quantifies the leveraging power of a star? Yeah, we have a, a data and analytics team um, that's pretty robust and and growing uh, because you know we like to balance our own instinct, our own instincts with information where possible. So we've you know you, you'd have to speak with them. They're I mean they're mad geniuses and and we have totally different skill sets. Mm-hmm. But I work really closely with them, and they use all types of different tools to figure out essentially overlap between Broadway ticket buyers and fans of, you know, a particular TV star or music star. They try to identify where those fan bases overlap, where those ticket buyers overlap, whether there are similar TV shows or news outlets that those fans pay attention to so that we would know where to advertise and how. Hmm. We take a look at the stars' social media followings and getting a sense of how active they are and comparing and contrasting that to previous stars who have been in other shows. So, yeah, the data team puts together these these really multi-layered presentations that hopefully, when distilled, can give us a client a sense of, you know, sentiment for just a lot of numbers, you know, just a, a sense of, you know, what the public sentiment is for this person, whether there's, you know, certain overlaps with Broadway. One interesting pattern that we've seen I think I I can say that this is a pattern is that if a star is somebody that people will generally pay a lot of money to see, Mm. um, like in concert or on stage, you know, if this is somebody who performs live regularly, sometimes Broadway ticket buyers are more likely, sometimes, you know, they're more likely to sell because people are already used to paying a lot of money to see them. Whereas the TV star, it, it might be uh, it might be a different situation because you know if you see somebody on TV every night you know you don't have to shell out over a hundred bucks to see them, and so the value proposition of each star is sort of different. So that's a pattern that we've seen. I, I don't know if it's totally scientific, but it's a pattern that's starting to emerge. No, that's that's uh, really really cool, and I'm, it's really cool that you guys have access to that and are using that data. So I want to come back in a second to some of the things you were talking about about how a star might might work might help what a star can do for a show and and obviously you know the obvious answer is sell more tickets but i want to know from the marketing advertising perspective in what ways does it sort of expand your horizons as a, a marketing team so that you can then sell more tickets sure so depending on where the person is from from what world the person is from we can expand our efforts in numerous directions. So we realized that by bringing in a new star, we're opening up the potential for a new market. Um, And so we try to identify what channels to advertise through um, to reach their their fans, essentially, and and that overlap um, 
as, as I had mentioned. And, you know, it's, it, it takes, it takes a village. I mean, it really takes a whole team of people here at Spaco to figure out exactly, you know, where we can go and who we can, who we can speak to in each star's case. And what I found is that one of the best ways that we can spread the word is for the fan is for the star to do it themselves, obviously. So if, a star who's coming into a show has a real social media presence. Um, and especially if they enjoy making content on social media and sharing content, then they can do a, a piece of the work for us. So what we like to do in those instances is meet with the star, talk to them about what kinds of things we would love for them to do. Sometimes they need some guidance. Sometimes they don't. I remember when Tondra Call went into Kinky Boots we had a meeting schedule and I think it just never happened. And the, the next week he released an awesome video. He didn't need a meeting with us. You know, he knows how to promote himself. This is his career. Right. And he made a great video that got millions of views and, you know, it sold really well. Now we were able to enhance, you know, we were able to enhance it and, and get the word out in other ways, but the organic content that he was creating spoke to his fans in his voice and, and, and it really did a lot of the work for us. That's not the case with every star. Um, but we do want to always find the best way to speak to their fans and having them post things on our behalf and vice versa, you know, really amplifying the efforts of, of both the show and the star, uh, usually does the trick. Yeah, is is there ever um, – okay, well, so, so I, I get that you know the star uh, expands the target audience for, for their fans. Um, what about uh, hitting the audience that you know, you've been hitting for the show um, to get either the people that just haven't come but maybe this star will convince them to or to get people to see – a show they love with a new person taking on their role. And, you know, one, one uh, thing I'm thinking about is uh, every time I'm in the subway these days, I'm seeing um, the Kinky Boots ads for, for Brennan Yuri. And obviously, Kinky Boots is a brand that's been advertised, you know, that, that is sort of known to a lot of the New York theater goers. And it seems that potentially what, what you guys are doing there is making it known that, you know, if you haven't seen it, but you wanted to, here's an extra reason. Or if you've seen it and you want to see a new person doing it. Yeah, it can add a whole dimension to, I say brand, but a show. It can it can add a whole dimension there, right? So if you thought one thing about a show, a casting decision can say a totally other thing about it. So if you bring somebody in like a pop star like Brendan, who has been, you know, a, 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 you know, a dream to work with, it says to people, oh, Kinky Boots is maybe cooler than you thought it was to his fans, right? Like it, it put it puts that show on the radar. So it's not only, oh, I want to go see Brendan because they could just go see him in concert. It's I want to see Brendan in this thing that apparently is very cool that I've never heard of before. Or if I had heard of it, it wasn't really on my radar until I realized he would align himself with it. Um, and he's aligned himself with it in a really big way. And the themes of the show actually match a lot of who he is as a person and an artist artist. And, and that's why it works. Um, and that's what producers and casting directors are always looking for mm -hmm. is somebody who will not only sell tickets, but who a will be really good in the part. I mean, he can, he can sing it and he can act it. He's great. But also who just aligns with the values of the show, whose fan base aligns, whose fan bases 
values align with the values of the show. So yeah, if we hadn't figured out a way to break through to certain Brendan Urie fans, just because of limited budgets or whatever it is, um, you know, as soon as he signs on, it's, it's just an instant way to connect to those people. And so now you're, you're getting into the sense of like, you know, what can a star do for a pre-existing show? Um, which is, it can, it can, turn the tide in terms of ticket sales, struggling ticket sales here and there. Um, it can re-energize things. It can give a new dimension to the brand. It can say, you know, this isn't, this show isn't only X, it's also Y, right? And, and by adding a star, you can, you can say something about a show that no piece of copy or imagery could ever necessarily say. Right. So that can be really helpful to us. In terms of repeat attenders... Going back to see a show, that definitely happens. I mean, on a slightly smaller scale, you know. But sure, it's a great reason to go back and see a show. It's usually not our primary message because it's 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 not a huge number of people. I mean, there are exceptions for sure. I mean, there are so many shows that have tons of repeat attenders. But, it, it you know, it, it's, it's usually not the focus of our efforts. It's just something that happens more naturally. So we, we've talked a lot about how the campaign changes once you've gone, once you've replaced with a star going into the role. Is it, does the campaign return to basically what it was before um, when the star comes out? Or is it a, you know, a brand new process to, to retarget and find a new message to, to send when the star comes out of the role? It's outrageously difficult and tricky. Um, so you've hit on the the core of what was challenging about the launch of great comet. Um, you know, a lot of musicals launch without a big star. Um, you know, a lot of new musicals just launch with Broadway stars, you know? Um, and there, there's a risk there because there's a wait and see people wait for reviews and, you know, ticket sales are often soft up front. I mean, Avenue Q book of Mormon. There are a lot of shows that I've worked on where, you know, in the beginning people don't know what the hell this thing is and, and they have no real reason to see it until the reviews come out and word of mouth starts to spread, et cetera. Um, so that's a risk, you know, that some producers are, are willing to take and, and others might be less so. In the case of The Great Comet, um, you know, I like to think that ticket buyers need to know two things up front, which is who's in it, what's it about. And, you know, it's okay if the answer is, you know, no one you've ever heard of is in it, and, but it's about X, Y, and Z. Um, one of those two things has to kind of get you in the door. Um, of course, there's word of mouth and reviews as well. But when it comes to Great Comet, when it came to Great Comet, you know, the what's it about was hard because it's a piece it's a slice of war and peace which is just oh man like how do we say, <laughs> how do we say what this thing is about without saying war and peace because really the the such a piece of the accomplishment of the show is is in how it took its inspiration from that material and how it's totally transformed it um and yet you have to be, you know, true to, to to what a show is. I mean, the worst thing you can do is sort of, you know, hide what a show is or about or is about. So the answer to what is Great Comet about was, well, it's a it's a reinterpretation of War and Peace. I mean, at the end of the day, right? Um, besides, it's great buzz and word of mouth and all of that. And so I think there was some concern up front. You know, how how, how can we ever get this thing off the ground? And 
you know, I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but at some point the producer, you know, um, hooked up with Josh Groban and realized that, you know, Josh Groban was looking to do something on Broadway. He really, really, really loved this role and it just felt right for him. And, you know, the casting director and the producer realized that he was going to be amazing in it and he would clearly sell tickets up front. So it just, it just aligned and it made sense. But as that decision was being made, everybody was fully aware of, of the challenge of building the brand of the show once he was mm. gone. Um, the thing is that the show is, is so spectacular um, and so much bigger than any one star that the hope was that, um, that people would, that word of mouth would spread, that it was just an incredible experience. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, in all the research that we've done, um, it's, it's become clear to us that some people went in for Josh Groban and came out just saying it was unlike any Broadway experience they'd ever had and that they would recommend it for all, you know, a number of different reasons. So, you know, word of mouth is really, really strong, but, you know, Josh helped get them in in the beginning. Um, now, there could have been a wait and see, but it's a big show. It's expensive. You know, the bigger a show is, the bigger the cast is, the more spectacular it is, the scarier financially a wait and see is, um, especially when you have such a cool star who wants to do the show and is so good in the role. Um, so that was tricky from the beginning in terms of our materials, uh, Josh and Danae were above title. I mean, that was a contractual thing. So wherever great comet appeared, their names appeared, um, which is, you know, which was in their contracts. And it's also something we wanted because we needed his name up there to sell tickets up front. That was a, that was a, a team decision with our client, but we were always trying to find places where we didn't always have to be about him. So it was really tough. I'll be completely honest with you. I mean, part of it was about figuring out how to speak to different people. So when we spoke to his fans, it was, you know, his face and his name. Um, in other places, you know, we would strategically make the decision sometimes to leave him out. And, and you know, it was, it was really it was really hard. I'll, I'll be honest yeah. with you, finding, finding that balance. Um, but there was, there were, there was a lot of attention paid to not being the Josh Groban show more so than let's say, uh, Bette Midler and hello Dolly. Right. right. Like, nobody, nobody ever said, let's, 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 you know, be careful here not to oversell Bette. She was the event. She mm -hmm. was the reason to go with Josh. It was like riding this, you know, the, like straddling the fence, um, 50, 50 in every way. And so we found ourselves, you know, mentioning him, but he'd be one mention in a 30 second commercial. Right. Mm -hmm. So he'd be there, but we wouldn't say his name three times. We'd say it once. Right. He'd be in an ad, but he'd only be in one quarter of the ad and the rest of the ad would be all about the show. Right. So it was trying to find that balance and it's tricky. I mean, once the word is out and, you know, a, a lot of what people learn about shows is through through the press. And so when it comes to PR, you know, you'll get more bites on a story if Josh Groban's in it. Right. So a lot of the press is all about was all about Josh Groban up front because because that's what that's what people were interested in doing stories on. And so once that word is out, you know, it, it's it's hard to kind of like, you know, put that back in when whenever 
at a certain point, we realized that sometimes we didn't have to say Josh because everybody knew it. And uh, it got to a point where we would sort of just take him strategically out of things um, and without, you know, any any change in ticket sales, because there was this point at which people just knew that he was in it and we didn't really have to advertise it anymore until his final weeks, of course. Um, but yeah, it, it was tricky because big musicals don't always launch with stars. It was sort of um, a special case. Um, and, you know, anybody who saw him in the role knows why the decision was made. I mean, he was great. Now that we've gotten a crash course in the mechanics behind a cast change, I want to return to the case of The Great Comet. In case you missed it, here's what happened. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the producers of Comet announced that Mandy Patinkin would be stepping into the show from August 15th to September 3rd, cutting Oak's planned engagement three weeks short. The replacement sparked uproar on social media by prominent members of the community and Broadway fans, many of whom were upset that a black actor was being replaced by a white star. In response to the outrage, Howard Kagan, the show's producer, released a statement claiming that Oak had, quote, graciously agreed to make room for Mandy, and that they, quote, sincerely hoped that Oak would return in the fall or winter. The next morning, however, Oak released a statement via Instagram thanking the community and fans for all the love and support, and revealing that he would not be returning to the production after his exit. In the following hours, several people close to the show weighed in, releasing statements in an attempt to rectify these two incredibly divergent narratives. Then, a third narrative came from a statement sent in an email to the New York Times from Mandy Patinkin. In it, he announced that he would be pulling out of the production, adding that he, quote, would never have accepted the role knowing it would harm another actor. Underneath this story of confusing messaging and miscommunication is a question of how equity contracts operate. How was Kagan able to cut Oak's run short, and how was Patinkin able to pull out of the show after the announcement? To answer these questions, I turn to Daniel Cuny, a Broadway and Off-Broadway general manager. Daniel is currently working on Puffs, now playing at New World Stages, and he has previously worked on Rock of Ages, A Night with Janis Joplin, Fella, 39 Steps, and many more. So first, Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the report. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of casting negotiations and agreements, could you let us in on what your role is as the GM with regards to the casting process? Yeah, sure. So as the general manager, we negotiate all contracts on behalf of the producer. So what will normally happen, the producer and the casting director and the director and the choreographer will go into a room, they'll figure out who they want to cast in a certain role, and then the casting director will send me, as the general manager, a deal sheet. So I will know who the agent is, I'll know who the actor is, I'll know what part they're being offered. The deal sheet typically doesn't have contract terms. That's where I come in. I help the producer figure out what this actor needs to be paid, if there are any other uh, benefits that we need to offer the actor to entice them to be in the show. And then I go off and negotiate the terms with the actor's agent directly. So where the actor has an agent that negotiates on their behalf, I negotiate on behalf of the producer. Okay. And I get that stars sell tickets, but is there anything else you can tell us about why a producer might send you to the negotiating table to land a star for the cast? Uh, For sure. Well, you know, there's really a a whole host of reasons why a star may end up on a Broadway show. You know, I don't necessarily think that the show has to be hurting, 
oftentimes it's a preemptive strike. You know, you've been playing on Broadway for a year. You feel like you need to have another press angle. You need to have some reviewers come back in. So it's not necessarily that the show is currently hurting, but you just want to you want to do everything you can to make sure that the show stays uh, successful for as long as possible. The other thing that can sometimes happen, or actually is great if it happens all the time, is that the, sh- the star needs the show as much as the show needs the star. Uh, you're really trying to match that up as best as you can. You know, the best situation is if you find an actor who's maybe not... I'm making this up a little bit, Tom Cruise, but you find someone who I'm going to get myself into trouble. You know, let's say Zach Braff, you know, Zach Braff, he hasn't done a movie in a few years. You know, he's looking to put hit, you know, revitalize his career. And I'm going to get Zach, please don't tweet me. You, you're, you're fantastic. But you know what I mean? Like, let's say, and I'm using Zach as an example, but let's say, you know, Zach just, you know, needs to prove something to the world again, or is just dying to show people that, you know, there's more to what everyone thinks he can do. You know, it would be great if Zach came into a show and, and did something. So the best, the best times it works is when it's good for everybody. It's good for the show because they've got some star power. They've got some more publicity. And it's good for the star because they've got something to show the world that they haven't previously had the platform to show. Right. And that aligns with what we heard from Cesar Rocha from Telsey earlier, which was that a lot of times there is – effort spent in making sure that a music artist can act or that a TV star can sing and dance. And so for multi-talented stars who aren't showing off their triple threat status in their own medium, Broadway may be the best place to be. Turning now to the circumstances of what happened on The Great Comet, I'd love to know the normal or usual way equity contracts are structured with respects to how they may be terminated? Yeah, so that's a great question, Oliver. So the first thing I should say is that there's really two types of contracts. There's a term contract that has a set end date to it, and then there is what we would call a four-week-out or a two-week-out contract that really is meant to go on in perpetuity, and the actor has the option um, at any time to either give the producer two weeks or four weeks' notice. So both of those contracts have slightly different termination clauses. If you're on a term contract, by and large, there's no termination. The producer can't terminate. If you are on a four-week-out or a two-week contract, the actor has the ability to give notice to the producer, but the producer doesn't necessarily have the ability to give notice to the actor. So what happens if a producer wants an actor out of the show and they're on a term contract? Yeah, so here's what would happen. So on a term contract, both parties are both sides are locked in, um, and there's very little to be done about that. There are a couple of rare exceptions. A producer can terminate for egregious behavior, but you know just how to prove egregious behavior uh, could be hard. What would normally happen if you have an actor on a, con- a term contract and you're the producer looking to terminate that contract? you would most likely just continue to pay them out through the end of the term. If the two-week and four-week contracts can only be terminated by the actor then, it stands to reason that Oak was on a term contract. It was probably a term contract. And so the term contract guarantees payment for the length of the term, but it does not mandate that you actually play the role and appear on stage for that time? In some ways, that's a good way to look at it. Yes. I mean, obviously, 
the, it's in the producer's best interest to make sure that they are playing the role every every week. That's why you're paying them. But if you, if for whatever reason they're on a term and it's just not working out, um, either they can't form, you know, to the ability that they everyone thought that they had, or there's they're just not fitting in with the cast. You do have the option to say, you know what, we're going to continue paying you out for the rest of your term, but we just can't let you go on. Let's swap sides of the table for a second here. And in this case, it's very clear that the production wanted to terminate an actor's contract early. But I can imagine situations, and maybe you've experienced this, where an actor is on a show and he maybe gets a movie deal with a scheduling conflict or gets a better role on a different show. Um how do these contracts stipulate that those issues get dealt with? Can the actor actually be the one to terminate? So that's an excellent question. So two quick answers to that. One, if you're on a chorus contract, so there actually is a difference difference between being a member of the chorus and being a principal. If you um, are on a term as a chorus member, but then get offered a principal role uh, in a Broadway show, an off-Broadway show, or a tour, you actually have the right to give four weeks' notice uh, to go take that principal contract. That's baked right into a chorus contract. If you're already a principal and you're on a term, you don't necessarily have an out to go do a movie or a TV show or any of the other things that you just said, but their agent probably has tried to negotiate some things that aren't baked into the, the standard equity contract. So it is not uncommon for an actor's agent to negotiate what we would call outs. So those outs can include things for local episodic TV, pilot season, if a pilot is picked up, movies. Um, so that is not uncommon. It's just not standard. When I say standard, it's not baked into the standard equity agreement. Outside of these items that are negotiated to be added or removed in particular in a in a particular actor's contract, all of these contract types we're talking about are standards provided by actors' equity, right? Yeah. So what will happen is, you know, there's a there's a ninety a hundred page rule book of all the rules that um, any equity member, both the producer and all of the equity members, have to abide by. In those rules, there's nothing about someone on a term contract being able to leave for pilot season. But the agent and the producer are able to negotiate rules or you know their own terms above and beyond what's in that rule book. Let's talk about these areas of negotiation that are used to entice stars to come to Broadway. So we've talked to we've talked about how you how you find your star earlier in this episode and what's happened after the contract gets signed, but you're actually the one that makes sure the deal gets made. So besides the large sums of money, what can you offer a star, and I guess outs are one of those things, to convince the star to sign on the dotted line? Absolutely. I mean, outs is one of the best things you can give to someone because it gives them the flexibility to leave if something else comes along that is better for their career. But there's all sorts of other things, too, that we can use to entice an actor to take apart, you know, um, car service is one thing, a guarantee of a private dressing room. Sometimes we even go so far as to say where you'll be in the pecking order of who gets to decide first or second or third of dressing rooms. Billing, you know, are you above the title? Are you below the title? Is your billing at 35% or 50%? Those are all points that we can negotiate. And sometimes, you know, we can say to an actor's agent, you know, 
we can't do above the title billing and we can't do $10,000 a week, but we can do $5,000 a week and 50% billing. When I say 50%, I mean 50% of the size of the title. So there's all sorts of things that we can do in the negotiating process. This is why, you know, negotiating can take anywhere from, you know, one quick email to three months. Wow. So why might a deal take that long? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're dealing with a mega star, it can take a long time before the terms of the deal make sense for all parties. You know, you sort of are going through this dance a little bit where the star is interested, but you know, is the time commitment going to be worth their while? Is the money going to be worth their while? So it's this dance that you try to do. And, you know, before everyone gets to yes, because there are all these various deal points, it can take a long time to hit the right combination of things. So how long after the star signs do we hear about it in the press? So that's when it would really bounce over to the press agent to help best time it. Um, and it's really going to depend on the needs of the show. You know, we would sometimes, what happens if the producer and the actor and the actor's agent all feel like a yes is inevitable, they'll say to each other, you know what, we, we don't have the contract fully fleshed out, but it's in our interest to get the name out there right away. We want to put tickets on sale. Do we have enough of an agreement in place that we can announce it? At that point, it's very rare for a deal to fall apart because it's kind of in the star's interest to, to follow through on it. You know, they don't want their name out there unless they're going to follow through on something because it doesn't look good for them if they pull out or, or if the public perceives them as pulling out. So it's really a little bit of it's, it's what the show needs, but it's not always necessarily before there's a signed contract. Ah, I see. So, so in the case of The Great Comet, then, it makes sense to assume that when the producer thought they had everyone in agreement, they rushed to press to get buzz and ticket sales running, but that Patinkin probably didn't have a contract yet, which is what allowed him to pull out. You know, I obviously wasn't in the room for what happened last week with Natasha, so I can't comment specifically. My assumption is Mandy did not have a signed contract. That's my assumption. Well, the other interesting thing is, so if you are on a standard minimum contract, so not a term contract, you actually can terminate with two weeks notice prior to the start of rehearsal. I think on a term contract, though, if memory serves correct, you don't have that ability to terminate. And with Patinkin's very limited run, his contract was probably term. Oh, for sure. Yes. So, and... Again, these are hypotheticals. Neither of us knows what happened, and neither of us are involved in the Great Comet. But my assumption, after speaking with you, is that Oak had a term contract, and then this new term contract with Patinkin was in the works. So they terminated Oak's contract, agreeing to pay him through his original term end date. And then, as we now know, things didn't quite go as planned. Yeah, I mean, this actually happens with some regularity. So what'll happen is you'll have an actor in a show and a producer is back channeling, seeing if a star is able to come in, as we discussed earlier, you know, it's good for the show. If a star is able to come in while an actor is under contract in that role already, the producer would normally go to that actor and say, look, 
we have this star. They're willing to come in for six or eight weeks. It's going to be a great thing for the production. You know, we'd like to continue to, you know, well, we obviously have to continue to pay you, but we love what you're doing. Well, we want you to come back. We hope you understand that this is really in the best interest of the show. And when I've had it happen before, the actor who is being replaced, who's generally not a star, totally gets it. I mean, it really is, it's good for the show. And it's actually kind of good for the actor because they get a six or eight week paid vacation. Right. And as I talked about earlier, in this case, it's not so much that the circumstances were so irregular, but rather that there was just too many miscommunications and messaging issues in dealing with the logistics of this transfer. Sounds like that could have been the case. Well, Daniel, thank you so, so much for coming on and taking us through these rather complicated contracts. It certainly helps pick apart this story and figure out what might have been happening behind the scenes. Always happy to help, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to episode two. I hope that what we've learned here will shed light on what happened behind the scenes the next time you hear about a casting change. If you have a topic in mind for us to discuss on a later episode of the O'Henry Report, I'd love to hear about it. Tweet it to me at Oliver Henry Roth. Here's what else you should know about Broadway this week. On Thursday, July 27th, the Tony Awards Administration Committee announced that the 2017-2018 Nominating Committee will have 14 new members. They were selected to serve a three-year term and include playwrights Tim Federley and Katori Hall, actor Celia Keenan-Bolger, and director Randy Skinner. They round out the 50 members who will decide on the Tony nominees this season. The Book of Mormon became one of the fastest musicals to gross $500 million in gross ticket sales on July 16th. And Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Sam Shepard passed away on Thursday, July 27th. Shepard was most recently represented on Broadway in 2015 with Fool for Love, starring Nina Arianda and Sam Rockwell. You can find The O'Henry Report on BroadwayWorld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Please be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth and on Facebook at O'Henry Productions or on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm